All right. If you will take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel tonight. Yes, you do have me again. I apologize. Blame Todd. He and Wendy are at G3 uh, this week. Uh, that's a good thing for, for both of them to go to, but uh, it's a good thing for Todd to be able to, to go and, and be a part of something like that. It's, uh, it's a, lot of, a lot of good teaching and preaching that goes on there, and, and so I, I know he enjoys that, and we, we're glad to be able to allow him to have that time to go and, and enjoy that and, and, and learn, hopefully, and bring back to us uh, some of what he's learned. So. But we are in Ezekiel 28 tonight. Now, we are to kind of catch us up a little bit to where we're at, really in the whole book. Uh, for the better part of this book, the book of Ezekiel, we have learned a lot of the judgment to come on Judah. Right? Uh, God had prophesied for much of this chapter, for the first 24 chapters, uh, against Judah and against Jerusalem and a lot of that, specifically the city of Jerusalem and the judgment to come in that ultimate last wave, that third wave of captivity that Babylon would bring on Judah. Beginning in chapter 25 though, there's a little break there being a, uh, in, a, in addressing Israel for the most part. We'll actually have a little bit where Israel is addressed tonight, but there's a little break of addressing Israel and multiple nations are prophesied against here by God through Ezekiel. And in chapter 25, you've got prophecies against Ammon, Moab, Seir, Edom, Philistia. And then beginning in chapter 26, prophecies against Tyre begin. So we have been in a couple of chapters already with prophecy against Tyre. If you recall last week in chapter 27, there was... The lament of Tyre. So chapter 26 was the prophecy of the judgment to come on Tyre. And then last week there was a lament of Tyre. And we went over what that means and what that was last week. Well, tonight in chapter 28, there will be a prophecy specifically against the king of Tyre. And then there will be a lament of the king of Tyre. So in verses 1-10, through we're going to have the prophecy against the king of Tyre. In verses 11 through 19, we will have the lament of the king of Tyre. And then in verses 20 and 20, 20 through 24, there is a, a quick prophecy of the fall or judgment to come of Sidon. And then the last two verses of the chapter, verses 25 and 26, speak of the regathering of Israel. The name or title of my, my sermon tonight is The Ancient Sin of Pride. I think that will make sense as we go through this chapter. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man, and no God, though you, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel, no secret is hidden from you, but your wisdom, or by your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, Therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. 
Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? Though you are but a man, and no God, in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of the foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So here in verses 1-10 through 10 in chapter 28, Ezekiel seemingly clearly to me addressed this prophecy directly to the ruler or the king of Tyre. Now, let me just say this to begin with, and just put this out there. I know Brother Burrow kind of mentioned this in his prayer, but there is a lot of controversy in this chapter. Really, the whole chapter. Uh, we will get into the, the primary bulk of the controversy, or the area of controversy in, in verses 11 through 19, but even in verses 1 through 10, there is some controversy over who is being addressed here, what Ezekiel is saying, and, and who he's saying it to. There are a lot of positions out there as, as to those things and those controversies. Some of those positions are, are steeped in pagan mythology and, and aren't worth addressing at all. I'm not going to address those. I'm, I'm actually not going to take a long time giving multiple opinions and in-depth opinions about what, is, what these multiple opinions are, but I will address a couple of the major talking points as, as we walk through this. Okay, To begin with, here in verse 2, God addresses, as we see, the prince of Tyre. Now, if you look down just a little bit, you will notice in verse 12 that God addresses the king of Tyre. You see those two different words, the prince and the king. Those are actually not just translated, they're not translation decisions that are made where they could both be translated king or they could both be translated prince. They're two separate words, they're two different words in the, in the Hebrew. And they are, are obviously translated differently, king and prince. So because of that, some see these as two different prophecies basically, or two different people being addressed. Two human rulers specifically, they're entire at, the, at that time who are being addressed in this prophecy. Some see the king of Tyre here in verses 1-10, through 10, uh, as, or the prince of Tyre here as the king, the actual king of Tyre, and then they see Satan being addressed in verses 1-11-20. through or 11 through 20. I'll speak a little bit more to that latter position there in, in verse 11. But here the word in verse 2, which is translated in the ESV as prince, it is also commonly translated as ruler. It could, it could be translated that way here and is in a couple of, uh, of other translations. And it's often used to address or speak of the overall ruler of a city or a nation, which most often was the king, right? So there's really no re- real reason to think that anyone other than the actual king, the ruler of Tyre, at this time of the writing of Ezekiel was being addressed here by Ezekiel here in verses 1-10. through 10. The king at this time was a man by the name of Ithabal or Ithabalus II. He ruled from 585 to 573 B.C. And that is most likely, in my opinion, that is exactly who Ezekiel is specifically addressing here in, this, in this, these first ten verses this, of this passage. Now, why would Ezekiel address the ruler of Tyre? I mean, he's already addressed the nation, right? I mean, he's, he's given a prophecy against the nation. He's given a lament of the nation. So why would he specifically address the, the ruler here, or the king? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. It, it wasn't uncommon for God to give a word of warning to a king or, or of a nation. Obviously, God directly addressed the kings of Judah and Israel often through the prophets. But he also had messages for other rulers outside of the kings of Israel and Judah and the king of Tyre here. He, we'll see in just a couple of chapters in this book that he will prophesy against Egypt and then her ruler, Pharaoh, her king, Pharaoh. 
leaders lead, right? I mean, they're, that's what they do. That's their purpose. It is to lead a people, to lead a group. So for better or worse, a leader has a major impact on the people he or she leads. The citizens of a nation, whether because they want to or because they are forced to, they follow their king or their czar or their president or their pharaoh or whatever name that leader has, has uh, as their, their title. The, the nation, the citizens of that nation, they follow the leadership of that leader. The leader of a nation or, or a city is generally a representation then of who the people are, right? Who the people of that country or that city are. So God addresses the leader of Tyre here. I mean, he's, he's addressed Tyre as a nation. Now he, he narrows that to the leader of Tyre, the leader of this nation. Beginning of verses 3 to 5, the sin of the king of Tyre is addressed, and, and, and we see specifically what that is. And, and really it is the same sin as the, the nation or the city of Tyre. It is pride. That's the primary sin. That is the, the problem. That is what is going to cause the fall of Tyre and of her leader. This king, as we see here, thought so highly of himself that he literally thought he was a god. We, we, we read that here, right? He says, Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a god. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. So he, he thought he was a god. And look, this was something that many leaders, other than, than he, have done. He's not the only one who's thought of them himself or herself as a god. For example, the Caesars of Rome, they demanded worship of themselves because they considered themselves deity. You know, in fact, we know that many of the early church members were persecuted because of their refusal to worship Caesar, Caesar as God. This king of Tyre truly thought in his heart that he was a god. The height of arrogant hearts literally knows no bounds, right? I mean, we can see that just in this passage. There is no higher arrogance, no higher thought of yourself than to think that you are deity. And that's exactly where this king's pride, where his arrogance had taken him to think that he was a god. But God makes clear, the one true God, Yahweh makes clear that this man, this king of Tyre, in fact, was not a god. There is only one God, and there is certainly no man that is God. Although He made His heart to be like a God, He was not God. And this is something I think we need to make note of here. This is what man, this man's heart told him he was, right? This is where it led him. His heart led him to believe and think that he was a God. Now, there should have been a lot of indicators to him that he wasn't a god. I mean, common sense should have told him that. I'm sure he got hurt, maybe stubbed his toe, got hurt while he's sleeping, as Todd often says. He'll say, I've heard him say a lot, I know I'm getting old because I get hurt when I sleep. Uh, that, that's true. I can testify to that now as I'm getting older myself. But those things are indicators that you're, you're not deity, right? You're not a god. You, you have doubts. You age. I mean, he was doing those things. Those are things that God does not do unless that God is Jesus who willingly and knowingly, other than the doubt part, He didn't doubt, but all those other things Jesus did have as, as human because He willingly and knowingly set aside His glory for the purpose of dying on the cross, right? But aside from Jesus, there is no other man 
who can claim to be God because there's indicators, among other things, there's indicators that should tell them they are not God. They didn't willingly give up that glory to come and be in human flesh. This king of Tyre should then have been able to see that he was not a deity. But he made his arrogance, or he allowed his arrogance and his pride to lead him to truly believe that he was God or a God. So in his heart, he truly believed himself to be that. And this is just another example of why we are not to trust our hearts, right? I mean, how often do you hear that, that statement, that advice? Really, I mean, this is common advice given. Just follow your heart. Just, just follow your heart. That's terrible advice. That, that is terrible advice. Uh, Jeremiah said in chapter 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So with that in mind, why would we want to follow our heart and trust it? Now, if we are born-again believers, then we have been given new hearts, right? And we are, have God's Word. Hopefully, His Word then is so familiar in our hearts, so familiar to us, and so implanted in our hearts that from our study and our love of it, that our hearts are set on following it. But at the end of the day, we, we depend on God's Word, not our heart, right? We follow God's Word, not our hearts. Notice also here that Yahweh does not say you are a God, or excuse me, you are not a God. No, He says you are not God, right? Now this man, he said I, his heart thought he was a God. Yahweh doesn't respond here by saying you are not a God. He says you are not God. What is the implication here? There is only one God, right? There's not a bunch of smaller gods running around where He is. There is one king God like the Greeks thought of, uh, of Zeus. Yahweh is the one true God. And there is no other. And He makes that clear even in this statement here. Let's not miss that. And then in verse 3, it seems that the king had some incredible credentials though. I mean, he was arrogant. He was prideful. But we read some really incredible credentials that he had. Uh, it's possible here in, in verse 3 and even in a, a little bit of verse 4 that Ezekiel is kind of being tongue-in-cheek here. He's not being literal. He's not saying that the king actually had the wisdom or was wiser than Daniel. He was just saying, you think you've got that much wisdom, right? It's possible that that's what he's saying. But I actually think he, he is saying, that Ezekiel is saying here, that you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. These are true statements that he's saying of him. Now, I think that's interesting that Daniel is, is mentioned here on a couple of fronts. Daniel would have been in Babylon in a high place of respect and influence during the days of Ezekiel, during the writing of this. By the time that Tyre was besieged by Babylon, Daniel had been in Nebuchadnezzar's court for about 25 years. So he was the leader of the wise men of the council there in Babylon and well known. There's no reason to think that the king of Tyre then would, have not, would not have known him. Now, Daniel was well known, as I stated, for his wisdom, and, and, and this king was said to have been wiser than him, to the point that this king could not be lied to, or mysteries and riddles could not fool him. But let me be clear about this. Let me say this, as we're talking about the wisdom of Daniel and the wisdom of the king of Tyre here. Even if this is a literal statement that he was wiser than Daniel, as we can see in the following verses, this wisdom was purely and strictly a worldly wisdom. The wisdom of Daniel was seen in his humility and his reliance on God. 
It was spiritual. Was was his really his primary wisdom. Daniel was a smart man. I mean, a worldly smart. But his his wisdom, as we see played out consistently in the book of Daniel, came in his spiritual understanding and his reliance on God. At the end of the day, that wisdom is the only wisdom that really is worth having. So it doesn't matter how smart this king of Tyre was, how wise he was in worldly things, it all came to naught eventually. According to verses 5 and 6, because of this great wisdom that he had, he was able to obtain great wealth and great treasures. This wisdom had helped immensely in acquiring wealth, especially in the areas of trade, which, as we saw last week, was the primary source of the greatness of Tyre, right? It was through their, their great trade. Now, as you read through this, the wisdom, how this wisdom had allowed so much wealth to be acquired, it was hard not to think of Solomon and the nation of Israel during his reign. At the height of his power, Israel was one of the more popular and well-respected places in the area, one of the well-respected nations in the area, and they were flowing with riches and they traded with places all around them, all of which were because of that great wisdom that Solomon had. Remember who gave Solomon that wisdom, right? It was God. Solomon recognized that at least for much of his life, and that's why God did bless them during his reign. For the king of Tyre, this growth in wealth through his wisdom, though, had created a lofty heart or an arrogant heart. Look, we all are given gifts by God. Okay? I mean, God gives gifts both to the lost and to the saved. It's not just restricted to those who believe in Him. The lost obviously do not have spiritual gifts, but they still have gifts that God has given them. Many of the same gifts that we as believers have. I mean, there are gifted speakers who are believers and unbelievers. There are gifted musicians who are believers and unbelievers. There are gifted cooks who are believers and unbelievers. There are gifted handymen who are believers and unbelievers. The key between the, and the difference between believers and unbelievers should be how we use those gifts, right? Do we use them for His glory or for our glory? Do we take pride in them as if we somehow gave those gifts to ourselves? We are the the originator of those gifts, the giver of those to ourselves, which doesn't even make sense. You can't give a gift to yourself, although people try to do that all the time, right? When they they go buy something, well, this is my gift for myself. This is my birthday gift to myself. People say that all the time. I'm not going to name anybody I know that say that, but... uh... No, but we can't give gifts to ourselves, right? Specifically, a gift of, of talents. Do we take pride in them, though, as if we did? Or do we give credit to the giver of those gifts? We should always give credit to the giver of those gifts, right? But that's the opposite of, of what this king of Tyre did. Instead of giving credit to God who gave him this wisdom, gave him these, this gift... He was arrogant and he took the glory for it instead of giving the glory to God. And therefore, he ultimately let it get him to the point where he thought himself a God. In verses 6 through 10, then, God issues this judgment on him as part of this, this sin, as the reason or the penalty for this sin. The penalty for this arrogance would, would be defeat in battle. We see here that strangers would come upon him and, and they would defeat him. Strangers were a reference to the nation or nations which would execute this judgment on behalf of God on the, the, the city of Tyre, the nation of Tyre, and, and the king herself. Look, this wouldn't be a coup then. It wouldn't be something that came up from within the nation. This would be a massive defeat on the hands of superior nations. 
Uh, when, when you defeat somebody else, you're showing yourself superior to them, right? Or, or better in some way, greater in some way. This king thought he was a god, but he would def- be defeated by someone who was greater than him. How can a god have a human defeat him, right? Well, a, a true god can't, but this king would see that he is no god. We're told here that they would be a ruthless nation, the most ruthless of the nations, And the immediate context of this would be a reference to the king of Babylon who did attack Tyre during the reign of this king. And the description of a ruthless nation would certainly apply to Babylon as they were a very ruthless nation. But this would remain true of future nations who would attack Tyre and future kings of Tyre who would be under attack by these nations, ultimately uh, with Alexander the Great conquering the the city there in the middle of the sea at its greatest or uh, at its most... I was going to say it conquered the most there. It sacked the city. There we go. Sacked the city. Make no mistake though, this would not be a peaceful takeover, right? I mean, this is not just where they come knock on the city doors and say, hey, we're here to take your city. Can you just give it to us? And they exchange and no deaths. Or no, this was going to be a gruesome defeat. This was going to be great havoc and terror that would come from this ruthless nation, these strangers they would put, then put to shame His wisdom and defile His beauty in this defeat. For all of His pomp and arrogance in the, the, heart, the king's heart, He would still fall, right? No matter what He thought, no matter whether He thought He was a god or not, He was still going to fall. No matter how wise He was, no matter how much riches He had obtained, He was still going to fall at the hands of this ruthless nation. Because the truth is, there's no wisdom that's more wise than God, right? There's no outsmarting God. There's no power greater than God. If God had determined that He was going to fall, then He was going to fall. And that's just the the truth of it. In verse 8, we see that the king of Tyre would be brought down to the pit in the heart of the seas in in this defeat. Now, the pit is often a reference to Hades or to the place of, of death. And this king would die the death of those who were slain. In the end... What this, is saying, what this is saying is he's just going to die like everyone else. He's going to die just as everybody else in the city or in the nation who falls in this defeat. So in verse 9, after such a defeat, God poses this really a rhetorical question. Will he, will he still say He is a God? No. I mean, there's no room for that at this point, right? I mean, God doesn't die. Right? God can't die. But this king will. In the hands of the superior army, he would not be able to rely on his assumed deity to save him. There is no godlike power then that was going to keep him alive. He would die at the hand of the judgment of God, and that is it. Said We're told here that he would die the death of the uncircumcised. Now, that was a statement meant to show dishonor or shame. Oddly enough, and I just found this out by studying that, Oh, the people of Tyre circumcised, the Phoenicians circumcised themselves, according to the Greek historian Herodotus. They did not circumcise for the same reason that Israel circumcised, which was to separate themselves as a, as a holy people different from pagan nations, different from nations around them, and a holy people dedicated to Yahweh. But they, they did still circumcise. But the force of this language was to show a shameful death or shameful end. And it was a common term used with great Hebrew scorn to, to, to really just put that focus on scorn for this king. 
then this section ends by the emphatic declaration that this would happen with absolute certainty because Yahweh declared it. For I have spoken, declares Yahweh God, Lord God. Unlike the king of Tyre, Yahweh is God. And so His Word is absolute and it will never be thwarted. And the king eventually saw that. Verse 11 We read, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. In the day that you were created, they were prepared." You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, or I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you. O guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So having finished the prophecy of the judgment of the king of Tyre in verses 1 through 10, we move into verses 11 through 19. And the title or description in your Bibles probably says something along the lines of the lament of the king of Tyre. Now, where there's controversy in verses 1 through 10, there's a lot more controversies in verses 11 through 19, over the purpose of it being written, who's addressed. You know, I addressed the fact that the prince of Tyre was mentioned in verse 2, or, and this is in verse 12, the king of Tyre. We're told that this is a lament of the king of Tyre. So why would Ezekiel use a different word here to address the same person, right? Why would he use prince in one, one section and king in another? Well, let me just cut to the chase, so to speak. I don't want to run around too much and try to give a lot of different explanations, a lot of different opinions. I'll just give you my opinion about what I think Ezekiel is saying here in this section. For what it's worth, as we go into this, every commentator that I read, all of which so far have been pretty solid in Ezekiel, they found themselves in the same position that I did after studying and going through this passage. The same king in verse 1 through 10 is being addressed here in verses 11 through 12. It's not a different king, it's not a different person as far as a human, not a different human. Verses 1 through 10 were the prophecy against the king for his sin, and then verses 11 through 20 are the lament over that king. But I'm sure as you read through that with me, it was clear that there are things said in that passage that just cannot refer to a human king. This king, in this passage, is said to have had a seal of perfection. This could only have been said of human beings of Adam, Eve, and Jesus. 
That's it. Only three that were ever created with a, 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 a per, with perfection. Or God, Jesus, obviously came and, and took on. He wasn't created in the sense of Adam and Eve being created, but I mean, he was born into humanity. But he, Adam, and Eve were the only humans who had perfection. That's it. The only other beings this could have been said about, created beings, are, are angels that that would have had perfection at any point. This being that we see here is full of wisdom, which is pretty much set of Tyre in the previous verses, but not perfect in beauty. Verse 13 makes it even harder to place a human in this description. Verse 13 says, You were in in Eden, the garden of God, right? This being was said to have been there at, at creation in the garden of Eden. And that is a place that only Adam and Eve, the only two human beings to have ever walked in that garden, were Adam and Eve. Of course, angels could have, and and I think were in the the garden, prior to the fall at least. says that His beauty is being described as being covered in all kinds of precious stones which were set or engraved in gold. Again, something that was never stated in the creation of any man, never stated of of a man. In verse 14, we're told that He was an anointed guardian cherub, Anointed meaning given special designation by God as a guardian cherub or an angel who was placed on the holy mountain of God. Verse 15 says that He was perfectly made or He was blameless. He was without sin when He was created until unrighteousness or sin was found in Him. So again, He was originally without sin. I'll stop there for the time being, but, but those things cannot describe a, a human, right? I mean, those, those descriptions cannot, they're, they're not a description of any human being. Even if some of them could describe Adam, perhaps, which people do make the argument that Adam is the one Ezekiel is referencing here as the perfect man, not all these things could refer to Adam. Just, they just couldn't. So who is this then? And what is going on here? I believe that this is is a lament of the king of Tyre, as I said to begin with. But I believe that Satan is clearly described here as well. Many see this as a close parallel to Isaiah 14, where the king of Babylon is addressed in that passage as well. And it seems to point towards the sin of Satan in that passage which led to his fall. The king of Tyre fell because of the same sin as Satan himself, which the king of Tyre was emulating in many ways. As Charles Feinberg states, when the king of Tyre claimed to be a god, he was displaying the same spirit as the one who promised Adam and Eve that they could be as God if they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil there in Genesis 3. But I think even further, this passage is saying that Satan was the spirit behind the pride in the king of Tyre. It's possible he even indwelled the king of Tyre. Now, now this is not to say that the king of Tyre was without fault and that Satan was making him be prideful. No, he was acting according to his own desires and his own fallen will. But I believe Satan was the spirit behind this. There's no question that Satan has always had influence on people. right? According to Ephesians 2, Paul, speaking to the church there in Ephesus, tells them that they were once dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians 4, 
Paul states, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of the world in John 14.30. He told the religious leaders in John 8.44, You are of your father, the devil, and, you, and your will is to do your father's desire. Speaking of Satan. So it's clear that Satan has influence on unbelievers and his spirit is leading the lost world. But this seems especially true, I think, of, of wicked leaders. Satan is very interested in leadership and in the leaders of this world. In Daniel 10... After receiving a vision and seeking understanding through prayer, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel. There in verse 12 of Daniel 10, Gabriel tells Daniel this. He says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days." Now, I'm not going to go in depth of that, but most see the prince of the king, king of Persia, the kingdom of Persia, as Satan, as, as, as the devil. But Michael, Gabriel continues on, he says, But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to, me, or came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. This is also an example of Satan's Power as we see Gabriel needed help from Michael the archangel, right? Which speaks somewhat to the, the anointed position that Satan seems to have or this being seems to have in our passage. According to Jude, Jude 9, Michael himself called on God to help in a battle with Satan. So again, I, I think the king of Tyre, to kind of bring us back here, the king of Tyre is addressed here. He's addressed in verses 1 through 10 in the prophecy against him. He's addressed in, in this lament of the king of Tyre, but I also think Satan and his fall are referenced here as the driving force behind and that the, the king of Tyre. So with this in mind, let's reread verses 11 through 15 to see how this fits or how this uh, fits in our, our minds with that in mind. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, the son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you... You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So we can clearly see, assuming that this is speaking of Satan behind this, the greatness of Satan in, in, in his creation, right? Satan was a beautiful, wise, blameless being given immense power and responsibility as the anointed guardian cherub. He was stated to have been in the midst of the stones of fire here. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, there's not a lot said about that statement. Anything I could find, and it's a difficult statement to try to just give you my interpretation or the interpretation of. The best explanation that I read was that God is commonly seen as symbolically in, in fire, right? I mean, for example, in Hebrews 12, 29 uh, we're told that He, God, is a consuming fire. In Exodus 24-17, we, we read, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. 
Earlier in, in Exodus, in that same chapter, the presence of God is also seen in connection to precious stones. It says, And they saw the God of Israel there, there under His feet, as were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the, like the very heaven of, for clearness. So I believe that what's being said there is that here Satan was said to have walked regularly and closely in the midst of Yahweh, there in God, in the, the mountain of the Lord. But then we're told at the end of verse 15 that unrighteousness was found in him. So instead of being thankful and satisfied in the greatness and beauty that God had given him, Satan chose pride and he attempted to overthrow God. If Isaiah 14 is in fact similar to this passage and speaks of Satan, then we can see that Satan fell because he said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Beginning in verse 16, we read, In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed your old guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. I do think beginning in verse 16, we kind of see this begin to draw a little bit back to the king of Tyre and directly address him as he speaks about the abundance of his trade and how he was filled with violence and sin. The reference to trade here seems clearly about the king of Tyre. as That's never a reference to Satan himself, never anything specifically that would... Uh, before Satan's fall, that he was engaged in any type of commerce or trade or anything along those lines. But verse 16b seems to clearly describe the casting down of Satan from heaven. Like Satan, though, the king of Tyre would be cast down due to his pride. Verse 17 describes pride as the original sin, really. The beauty and wisdom of his being caused him to be prideful. All of that wisdom went to waste because he valued his beauty. It says... He corrupted himself, or he corrupted the wisdom that was given to him. So he corrupted it. His, his wisdom was perfect, but he, his very act of pride and sin was the corruption that led to, this wisdom, or the, led to the corruption of this wisdom. His choice to arrogantly love and exalt himself because of his beauty was the corruption of this wisdom. Had he remained in perfect wisdom... He would have chosen not to sin, right? He would have chosen not to be proud and arrogant and try to raise up above God or put himself in the place of God. So in light of this, he was cast to the ground. The ultimate fulfillment of this is, is still future looking, I think, of Satan's, Satan's ultimate fall. But there is still some sense in which Satan has access to God. We, we see that in the book of Job. Ultimately, though, he will be cast out forever, defeated in finality, and he will be thrown into the lake of fire with the rest of his followers. And ultimately, this, this will be fulfilled in that sense, I believe. In verse 18, we, we again see the king of Tyre directly addressed in the unrighteousness of his trade. Remember again that even though unrighteous trade was not the sin of Satan in his fall, it, it was his spirit driving the wickedness of the king of Tyre here and in that wicked trade and, and what was going on there in the city of Tyre. Tyre had set up many sanctuaries and temples and was actually called the Holy Island at one point. These were profaned when, when they were defeated. They, as a direct result of the pride of the king, it led to their defeat, and so their sanctuaries that he, they had set up were, were defiled or they were destroyed. Tyre and her king were eventually turned to ashes and to nothing for all the people of the earth to see as an amazement and mockery as we saw last week. Then finally in verse 19, this lament is finished. 
All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be forevermore. That's very similar language to what has been said about Israel several times, right? Even in this book, as the judgment is going to be issued on, on Israel and the ultimate end of that, that judgment would be that nations would look on them and be appalled. They would look at them and, and see that their dreadful end had come. And, and so God had used Israel as an example that He would judge His own people for their wickedness and their sin. And Tyre then would serve as an example of God's judgment on the wicked. Then in verses 20-24 through 24 read, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Sidon and prophesy against her and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets, and the slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord." So here in verses 20 through 23, a a word of judgment is pronounced against Sidon. Now, Sidon was a a neighboring coast people of of the people of Tyre. They were about 20 to 25 miles away from the city of Tyre, Tyre, the nation of Tyre. They were direct descendants of Canaan as they were founded by his firstborn son, Canaan's firstborn son. And some think that Sidon was actually the parent city of Tyre. But Tyre, by this point, had clearly become more prominent than Sidon, and and they were the the greater place, so to speak. Still, though, they were very closely related, and and, uh, Sidon was very vulnerable, or at least much more vulnerable to military conquest than than Tyre was. Uh, But so far, she had escaped it, probably probably because of her closeness with with Tyre and, and her relationship with them. But God here is seen as emphasizing His glory and His holiness in the judgment against her. They would be manifested in her midst, is what we're told here. He says that disease and war would be her downfall, or what would ultimately cause her destruction and be the judgment against her, according to verse 23. We know that ultimately Sidon was destroyed by fire as a result of the Persian king Artaxerxes. She did rebuild to some extent later, but she was really an unimportant city from that point forward and just a small seaport, basically. What was the reason for this judgment? It seems to be directly related to her poor treatment of Israel. Sidon was seen as the the headquarters, though, of worship of Baal, Ashtaroth, and Tammuz, according to Charles Feinberg. So we see that influence on the people of Israel in 1 Kings 11, verse 33. We, We see how that influence came on Israel because of Sidon. Brian mentioned this a couple of weeks as well, but King Ahab of Israel took the daughter of the king of Sidon to be his wife, her name being Jezebel. Most people are pretty familiar with who that is. And she was instrumental in making Baal worship prominent in Israel during his reign. So it's possible that this direct issue and the thorn to Israel, which we'll see here in verse 24, this poor treatment of Israel was directly related to the the pagan worship that Sidon had influence on uh, in in the people of Israel. We read in verse 24, And for the house of Israel there shall be no more a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. So in verse 24, God states that He will remove all briars which prick and thorns which hurt Israel. Meaning that all neighbors who have caused them problems, whether it be through direct contempt and hatred, or whether it be through idolatry and treating them poorly, this is not to happen at some point, that He's going to take all of those away. 
But the truth is, that's, that's not happened yet, right? That's, that's never happened. You can look through the complete history of Israel, and they've never been free of neighboring countries who had contempt for them, who, who sought to do them harm. Now, again, many try to put the church here and make this the church, but if this is the church, then I can look at the history of the church and see that there's never been a, a time in the history of the church where the church has been void of people or, or neighbors treating her with contempt, right? I mean, that's been throughout the history of, of the church till today. Which leads us into verse 25 through 26. Thus says the Lord God, When I gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it. And they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. So this is going to take place when God gathers the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they have been scattered. Again, this was not fulfilled already when the 70 years of captivity here in Babylon were over, when that small remnant returned to rebuild the temple. You can look at the books of Ezra and the books of Nehemiah and see that account and see that as soon as they returned, there remained opposition to them. That they worked, in fact, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 23 says that they worked with a... Uh, with a weapon in their hand. They were building with one hand and working with a weapon in their others because of opposition to them. The house of Israel is mentioned here as well. The house, not the house of Judah or any other specific tribe or kingdom, but the house of Israel as a whole. I believe this to be a reference to the entire nation, a time when the entire nation will be gathered back together. And then we see here a clear land reference which can only be applied to Israel. I... I, I could find no reference in Scripture to a land reference in the Bible uh, to the church, where there's a land promise to the church. Specifically here, we see that this land given to Jacob, which can only be the promised land, which was specifically given to the nation and people of Israel. God's holiness, as we see here, will be manifest in this. Verse 26 gives very detailed descriptions of, the, of life on this land where real homes and real vineyards will exist by the hands of, of Israel. And again, it, I, it's hard to spiritualize that and to make that be anything other than the nation of Israel, the, the literal nation of Israel that has come on to this land and will one day re-inhabit it, having been pulled from all the nations, gathered where they've been scattered, and they will again live and build and have homes there. God's holiness again is manifest through King Jesus reigning on the throne of David. No longer will nations hold Israel in contempt, but will still seek to have an Israelite take, her, take them to see Jesus in Zion, right? I mean, we know that. There will be no danger for Israel from surrounding nations in this day. Jesus is going to be reigning on the throne where they will inhabit. They will dwell securely because He will execute, have executed judgment on all who would cause her harm. And again, He will be dwelling there in Zion with them. I think that's exactly what's promised here. Just a little taste of what the people will see here soon in, in Ezekiel uh, in a couple of chapters and what the people will soon get in prophecy from Ezekiel. A couple of things as we come to a conclusion. You see here at the end of this chapter it says, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. And back up in verse 24, it says, they will know that I am the Lord God. We see that, that, that phrase or that term used in, in some small variation in this chapter a couple times, but it's used 54 times in the whole book of Ezekiel. 
It seems like one of the focuses in this book is that all people must ultimately know that the Lord is the source of all blessings, all calamities, all risings or fallings of nations and of their leaders. Men must and eventually will recognize that He is supreme. His will is supreme and it cannot be thwarted. I think Ezekiel's focus is, is on that in a great deal, or a great deal of his focus is on that in, in the book, and we see that here in this passage as well. Arrogance to the point of claiming deity, as we see here in this king, is not only a problem with civil leaders. It, it's been a problem, with, as we noted through the, the sermon, with multiple kings and multiple leaders, but it's not just a problem with civil leaders. Well-known Christian preachers or pastors claim to be gods quite often. They claim to have the power of God in their speech. Sometimes they claim to have power over God in their speech, as if God will not act until they speak. They, they, they control, basically, when God acts or doesn't act. Well-known charismatic preacher Creflo Dollar made this statement in a sermon in 2001. Attempting to quote and preach Philippians two, he said, "Have this mindset in you that we excuse me have this mindset in you that was also in Christ Jesus." He then stopped, and he asked the congregation. He says, "Now, what mindset in you? Excuse me, what mindset did Christ have that the apostle Paul is instructing us to have?" He then goes on and he reads the. Uh, a little bit more of the, that, that verse. He says, "...who although He existed in the form of God, speaking of Jesus in that passage, though equality with God, not a thing to be grasped..." Excuse me, I've, I've gone over... "...who although He existed in the form of God, though equality with God, not being a theme grasped..." He went, I didn't say that. Paul said that. We have to have the same mindset that Jesus had. Equality with God. This is Creflo Dollar speaking. He says, we've got to have the same mindset as Jesus, which is equality with God... And he goes on and says again, I didn't say that. He said that, speaking of, of Paul. We are equal with God, is what Creflo Dollar said. This is obviously a gross twisting of that passage. That's not at all what that passage is teaching, speaking of. But look, that type of language and that type of teaching is common in many sects of Christianity. It's not a foreign teaching. This idea that we are equal with God, that we... We control God in some ways, that we are meant to be gods. That is, as I stated in my sermon earlier, the height of arrogance, to think that we could be a God or equal with God. So don't think this is just something that's out there in, in the civil leaders. This is something that's, that's crept, in, crept into Christianity. And I use that term l- loosely, but I mean, there are many people who claim to be Christians and who uh, claim to follow Jesus that sit under that teaching and believe that teaching. Paul warns, though, of, of this in the qualifications of an elder in, in 1 Timothy. He states that a, a new convert is not qualified to be an elder because he may be, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The condemnation of the devil being pride, which he thought he was equal to God. He says this, this new convert cannot be an elder because they may fall into that same, that same problem, that same pride. So this is something that God warns of in the qualifications of an elder. And so if it's warned of for the qualifications of an elder, we need to be wary of that and know that it's something that we need to be uh, thinking about and, and uh, you know, to, to think of when we're selecting elders or looking at preachers and what their qualifications are, how they teach. Look, Satan didn't just fall and affect himself, right? When he fell, 
No, he, he took a third of the heavenly angels when he fell. His leadership resulted in that. And so the truth is, wicked leadership affects more than just that leader, right? I mean, the leader is not the only one who's affected by his own wickedness. We see that in the king of Tyre here. We see that with the Pharaoh here in, in Egypt before we will see that. It always affects more than just the leader. So leaders are important. I'm not going to get up here and give you a political rant. I will just say, while we have the, the perceived power to select our leaders, we need to be very careful in how we are selecting those. And we need to look at how they live their lives, how they present themselves, and pride of, one of, the, of, of any proclaimed leader needs to be a major sticking point, in my opinion, in how, in how we view them. It, it is literally what caused the fall of Satan. It's literally what caused the fall of this nation, of, of Tyre, the leader being prideful. Lastly, Satan is always trying to mimic God. I think we see that here. Look, I mentioned Solomon and Israel, how this passage kind of reminded me of Solomon and Israel. Tyre and her king were, in a sense, a lot like Solomon and Israel, that their, his, the leader's wisdom had gained a lot of wealth and renowned uh, notoriety for them. Ultimately, Satan will attempt to, to mimic God again. He will attempt to mimic the kingdom of God when he attempts to build his own kingdom there with the future kingdom of Babylon. This same spirit that was influencing the king of Tyre will one day also influence and lead the man of lawlessness. Paul, writing about him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, speaking of the coming of Jesus, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So unlike the king of Tyre, who claimed to be a god, this man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, will proclaim himself to be the one true God. Not just a God. He's going to sit on the throne of David and attempt to, to claim to be God Himself. We can't control whether that happens or not. God's prophesied that that's going to happen, it's going to come. We can't control that. We, we don't need to try to control that. We don't need to try to prevent that. Okay, I mean, I'm not saying that we don't try to preach and teach and warn and, and pray that God has mercy and, and shields us from that during our lives and the lives of our children, our grandchildren, but ultimately, it's going to happen. It's going to come. Whether that comes in our lives or the lives of our children or grandchildren or whoever it might be, our, our focus should be not to follow that leadership, right? Not to follow the pride in that man or the spirit of that pride we need to follow good leadership, ultimately the leadership of God Himself, who we get His Word. We get plenty of leadership in this. I pray that we counsel each other in that, that Word, that we teach and preach that Word to give good leadership in that sense, and that we all are, are good for each other and, and, and lead each other to be God-exalting and lead ourselves away from pride and arrogance, any, any type of pride or arrogance. Okay, Stand with me.